Uh, Laura Starczewski is an independent producer based in New York, Brooklyn? Brooklyn? Bronx. Bronx, sorry, Bronx, uh, and a professor of media arts. She's joined today for this win-win air pitch panel by Julie Snyder from This American Life, David Krasnow, Studio 360, and Celeste Wesson from Marketplace. We're really, really lucky to have such expertise in front of us here, and also very lucky to have the brave, game, willing producers who are here to pitch their stories. You're just as important to this session, and we appreciate all of you being here, and everyone here to watch. So with no further ado, Laura Starczewski. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, so I'm Laura Starczewski. I'm an independent producer. I'm also an AIR member, uh, and I'm going to be your guide through the panel today. Um, on today's panel, we're really here to spotlight a critical moment, the pitch, pitching your story. Um, and it's usually a private exchange between an editor and a producer, but today we're going to pull back the veil and make it public for you all. Um, the, the moment where you pitch is really a crucial moment. It determines whether you're going to go forward with your story or whether you're not going to go forward with your story. So to be a good pitcher, you have to be able to sell yourself a little bit, maybe even brag or boast a little bit. And I know that that's, that can be difficult for us people in public radio, but I really just want to encourage all the pitchers today and everyone in general to kind of leave that humble public radio persona at the door and, and don't be afraid to be a little bit bold when you're pitching. Um, the, the long and short of it is that if you can master this skill, you can get your work on the air. So I'm really excited to be hosting the panel today. Um, I just want to say a few quick words about AIR, the Association of Independence and Radio. Like I said, I'm a member. This is the fourth or fifth year that we've been doing this panel, um, and we're really excited to be back. Um, I want to give a quick shout out. I don't know if he's here, but uh, Peter Clowney from APM was one of our coaches who coached our pitchers this year. So if we could give a quick round of applause for Peter Clowney. Um, this year on, the, on both panels, we've tried to bring, you know, veterans uh, like today's panel and also voices from outside of the industry. So we're really excited about the, the group that we have up here today. I think all of you guys have been on the panel at one point or another before, so they're kind of old pros at this. Um, we have a couple of new voices, scholarship member, uh, scholarship winners who are among our pitchers today. So I just want to say hi to them and all the first time conference goers who are here. And uh, last, I just want to point out um, Sue Shart, the executive director of AIR, is here in the back. And I don't know if Aaron Mishkin is here, the membership director, but they're of course instrumental in putting this together. And if you want to talk to Sue or Aaron or me, in fact, about joining AIR, please do. I'm a very enthusiastic member. So ask me anything you want to know. Um, so I'm going to introduce the panel in a minute, but first I just want to get a sense of the room. So how many people have pitched a story before? Whoa, awesome. And how many people have never pitched a story? Okay, good. Um, how many people consider themselves to be strong story pitchers? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> It's the modesty thing oh, you were talking about. Oh, come on, guys. you got to be bold. No strong story <laughs> pitchers in the whole room? Well, how many people, medium, maybe you're okay at it? You've sold a story. You've sold a story before by pitching it. Okay. Good, good. 
Thank you so much. So I, I want to introduce our editors and then get right down to it. Um, so if you guys can just go down the line, we can start with Celeste Wesson from Marketplace. On the end, I'm just going to ask each of you to say a couple words about your show. What is it about? So Marketplace is about money, business, economics, and how it affects our lives. Ooh, and sometimes it, we use money in some way as a lens to tell a story that you could also tell another way. Um, and it's it's business, yes, but it's really for a general audience. It's for everybody. We don't. The show is not pitched toward um, a specialty audience at all. Um, and we're actually three shows, and we take pitches for all three programs. Um, I'm senior producer of Marketplace, the evening weekday evening show. But there's also Marketplace Morning Report, which takes, uh, which we we. Um, both shows would uh, use both freelance features, although the features on the morning report are very short, and also spots. And then uh, Marketplace Money is our weekend show with more of a focus on personal finance. So there are a lot of different things uh, that, that can fit under our umbrella. Great. Thank you. I'm David Krasnow. I'm the editor of Studio 360. Uh, we're a national weekly program about arts and culture. In January, we will celebrate our 10th anniversary. Um, I've done this with Celeste before, and I think the last time also, I think I remember saying that what she said about her program and business is sort of true about my program and the arts, um, is the arts and culture are sort of the way into a whole range of stories and ideas and people, um, and we try to conceive that terrain in as broad a way as we possibly can. Um, our show takes a number of formats from really long-form, long-development programs like the American Icons series that we're doing now, which has been in development for since before some of you were born, um, uh, all the way through really, you know, fairly short turnaround arts news pieces that we may try to get on air. Um, usually we don't assign out something that would happen same week, but, you know, within, you know, things that happen on leads of maybe two or three weeks. Um, so uh, the format of the show sort of changes week to week, which is one thing that makes it really exciting to work on. Um, it gives you more openings to pitch different kinds of things in different ways. Um, it also means that we sometimes feel as though we are reinventing the wheel every single week, and it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Julie Snyder. I'm the senior producer for This American Life. And uh, This American Life is a weekly uh, one-hour show that revolves around a different theme every week. So it's not necessarily about any one thing in particular. Um, the, the general thing, though, is that we tell uh, usually fairly long-form stories uh, about specific characters told in a pretty, um, uh, a pretty specific storytelling kind of way of where they're, they're characters who are in conflict, um, uh, there's a lot of emotion, and then, you know, kind of going to reflection and resolution at the end. But uh, for the most part, the, the themes change up every week. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, it, it can be just a story about, uh, you know, two people living in a small town who are having a fight over a dog or something like that. And then, uh, then we are also doing, we do topical programs as well that are more pegged to news programs um, or events happening this week show is, you know, pegged for the midterm elections. Um, we did a show two weeks ago on Iraq. Uh, so, so we can go that route as well. Um, but I don't think there's the, nothing in particular that's changed in the last few years in terms of what we're looking for. Great. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to have you guys here. Um, so I want to bring up our first, 
first pitcher in a minute, but I just want to go over the session logistics. Um, each pitcher is going to come up and sit <coughs> there at the end of the table. I'm going to call you all up one at a time. Um, we're going to go Marketplace, Studio 360, and then This American Life. And each pitcher is going to get eight to ten minutes, um, and I'm going to keep time and let you guys know when you have three minutes left and when you have one minute left to, to give you a warning uh, to start wrapping it up. And so, so wait, Laura, are we, mm -hmm. are we having conversation in that period of yeah. time, or are they, okay. So how many yeah. minutes? Ten, you each get eight to ten. Okay. Eight for to the, ten for the, for the entire thing. For the pitch thing. and the conversation. Yeah, pitch okay. and conversation, eight to ten each. So um, keep the pitches tight, because a lot of the important <laughs> stuff is the conversation about the pitch. Yeah, I would definitely encourage you guys to prompt the conversation early mm -hmm. on. Um, that's definitely true. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to take questions. I hope that we'll have time to. Um, a few audience questions. And then at the very end, Carrie and Michelle, our wonderful, wonderful rapporteurs, is going <laughs> to do a very special um, rundown of everything that happened, a five-minute rundown at the end of the session. So before we really get started, I just want to remind everyone here that we're all here in service of each other. We're all here to learn something. So I want to encourage the editors first just to really give honest feedback um, to the pitchers. And then I just want to give the pitchers a round of applause before we even start, because they're really putting themselves out there. Okay. Great. So our first pitcher is going to be Erica Beras. Um, she is coming to us from Pittsburgh, where she works at WDUQ <coughs> as a behavioral health reporter and a producer. You can come on up. Um, and before she, she worked in Pittsburgh, she was a staff writer at the Miami Herald, where she covered breaking news. So take it away, okay. Erica. Hi, how are you? Okay, so the story I'm pitching is about natural gas drilling um, in urban areas, especially Pittsburgh, where I'm living right now. Um, there's this massive natural gas formation underneath the state of Pennsylvania, some of New York, West Virginia, Maryland, but mostly Pennsylvania, called the Marcellus Shale. Mm -hmm. And it's estimated to be about a trillion dollars worth of gas, and it's also been estimated that it could fuel our country pretty much for the next 15 years. Um, there's also all these other numbers, you know, it'll create 80,000 jobs, it'll do this, it's sort of like the new gold rush. Um, and it's been pretty um, back and forth on how people have received it because the way that they extract the gas is pretty controversial. They sort of cause something, it's like a mini earthquake underground um, to loosen up the shale and they flush a lot of water in and a lot of chemicals and that leads to then the gas sort of flowing out, the oil sort of flowing out. Um, and people sort of have accepted it because it's a good industry. You know, it's money, it's jobs, but within the city people don't want it at all. And so it's been a very contentious battle with, you know, council members saying we're not, we're going to outlaw it, whereas other people are saying we really need this because it's a lot of money. Um, and it's sort of been coming, getting sort of boiling up. There's a governor's um, election on Tuesday. There's a big industry national meeting this week. There's a lot of protest plans. So the story is how can this happen within a city? It's already happening right now in Fort Worth, Texas, um, and how it's affected Texas and how it would affect Pittsburgh if it did happen there. So are you, so uh, so for your pitch, are you gonna, going to go to Fort Worth? Um, no, I'm going to stay in Pittsburgh. Okay. So 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 tell me, um, I, you know, I think that what you've done between the written pitch that I saw and, mm -hmm. and this is fantastic, and that there was you know a lot about this, and there was a lot of the background information. You've really boiled it down. So I think I understand the background really well. What's the what is the ch the tension 
that's going on in Pittsburgh. I kind of want to know, I feel like I've got the lead to the story, but okay. I'm not sure what's going to be happening. What are you going to be reporting on about Pittsburgh? Okay. Well, I think one of the sort of party lines that people have sold about Pittsburgh is that it was a smoky industrial city and it's been reborn as a sort of a green city, a high tech, you know, city where people work in hospitals and they work at computer companies and there's lots of LEED certified buildings and it came back really well. But all of the surrounding areas are pretty, not all, not all of them, but they're not doing as well. They're still struggling. And so any kind of industry would be welcome. And so it's this interesting sort of um, contradiction where the people who live within the city, who for the most part are doing okay, are like, well, why do I care if I would get a few thousand dollars to lease my land? Whereas other people say that could that could be my income for the next couple years. That would be a great thing. So it's sort of the idea of, you know, some people just want work. Other people are saying, well, you can do it. I, you know, I, I use all of this, but I don't necessarily want to be a part of it. So, so what, what's actually happening? You know, if, if, I, if I want to, look, I mean, there's, there's clearly money involved in this story. You know, this is clearly a story that could be a marketplace story. What's happening right now in terms of is there a campaign? Are there debates? Is this really happening? Why, why are we doing this story now? Because we're, we're okay. in kind of a news show, news, news analysis, right. but it, it, it's, there's got to be kind of a now. Um, right now, um, there was a study that one of the universities did where in the last few years, the amount of leases to the gas companies has gone up like almost like 300 times, which Around is- Around the state? No, just in, within the county of Alleg Allegheny County okay. and the city of Pittsburgh. Um, and that includes the Catholic diocese has leased out their cemeteries. Um, there've been a lot of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk about burying the lead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and there's also- So much you can learn just from telling yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to a group of a few hundred people. Yeah. Um, and there's blighted areas within the city they, that people have also, whoever owns the land have also leased out. So that's been kind of jumping by bounds. But at the same time, there's one council member who said, we don't want it at all in the city. But whatever city the city decides might be um, upended by the state. I don't think they get to make those decisions. When, when is the, do we know when the city is supposed to decide? Or, um, or we're in the, we, we're we're in in the early stages? We're in of the a, early stages. And mm -hmm. so they haven't actually started drilling in the county that that it's in, but they've started drilling in all of the surrounding counties. And so the big fear is, and there's already been a few incidents where there have been gas explosions and there was, um, it wasn't in the state of Pennsylvania, but there were some workers injured and there have been counties where the water supply has been tainted on the other side of the state. So the worry is if that happened where the majority of people live, then that wouldn't be a good thing. You know, one of the things that I thought when I read the pitch and I, I think is, would be helpful for for us here too is that um, the whole Marcella Shale natural gas story, this is, it's a huge story. Um, we've already done some pieces about it. I'm sure other, other outlets have done stories about it. it it's going to be a story for years. So your slice of it is, you, you know, I think that you're, especially if you think that most of our stories are three and a half, four minutes. Um, you know, what piece of this story do you want to tell right now? What, what's going to take us into the heart of the conflict in Pittsburgh now? Hmm. How do you, you know, is it, you know, how, how can you sort of pinpoint what you know you really want to have in that piece? I think we know that we want to have the Catholic Diocese and their cemetery. <laughs> uh, but but where, what else are you going to 
uh, um, you know, what else are you going to build that story around? What conflict or what question or which people or... Right. See, ideally, um, my story would be built around somebody who has signed a lease on their land um, and has gotten some money um, and then realized that maybe they don't want to do this, but you've, once you've signed a lease, you've signed a lease. Um, and that would be somebody who probably lives in the city, probably lives in an area that's mostly blighted, where they would pretty much be the only thing standing between drilling taking place and not taking place. Um, whether or not that actually would happen, you know, if that person actually exists and would speak with me is a whole other story, but that would be the ideal story I would tell. Well, and, and at some point you also need to have somebody who believes pretty passionately that this is really good for Pittsburgh and it needs to do it. Um, who's going to say it's not good for Pittsburgh? What kind of... We've got about um, two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. Okay. Um, they've had many, many panels on this and mm -hmm. different types of hearings. And a lot of the engineering schools um, have engineers who are working on studies right now. And they very much say it's not good for the city. You don't know what the, you know, the geologic, you know, formation is. It's in the mountains. There's rivers. We don't know what could happen. Um, and then there are a lot of the environmental groups. There are um, also people who I think, you know, really kind of remember the city's industrial past and want to move past it. And there are mostly historians and people say, you know, I don't, we don't want to go there anymore. We want to kind of move towards something else. You know, I, I think that there's, there, there are many frames that you could, I think there are many slices that you could choose from this. I think that um, you, 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 although we do a lot of stories about sustainability, I think that here you might want to really take, for marketplace, you might want to really look at a more, a, a kind of a purer economic question maybe. Um, so, you know, when you, when you talk about people who, um, there's been this revitalization of Pittsburgh. It's, it's really a big part of the city's identity now that we're not the old Pittsburgh, we're the new green Pittsburgh. You, you know, how, how do you, there's sort of a debate, and I think how you tell it is another phase of developing this pitch that you're not, we're not quite going to be able to do in a minute. But um, what's the best thing for Pittsburgh? Is it to do the drilling, take the risks, but have this new industry? Or is it to, is there really a future, is there really a risk to sort of the reputation of Pittsburgh if it becomes an industrial city again? But how you find characters that can do that, how you find scenes mm -hmm. that can help you tell that is another, is another. It's a whole other dimension. Dimension. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things to remember is because we're, we're a half hour show, our pieces tend to be fairly short. You know, we are more likely to cover something in a slice here, a slice here, a slice here, a slice there, that, that it's really hard to do an overview piece in, in three and a half or four minutes. So I think we have about 30 seconds. So Celeste, what do you think the next steps would be for, for Erica? I think that it would be thinking about which story you really want to, you know, which piece of this you really want to pitch and start imagining the story, that'll help you figure out whether you can actually tell the story you want to. Because it's almost like you have to be willing to drop some of the fascinating aspects of this, or you okay. won't be able to focus the story. Okay. So it's more, more sculpting. Okay. okay great, right. we're gonna have to leave it there. Thank okay. you so Thank much. Thank you. So our next pitcher is Lisa Matuska.
and she was born in warm and sunny Florida. Uh, she moved up to Chicago to study journalism and international studies at Northwestern, and she's just come back from a year of reporting in Morocco and Poland. All right, so we're going to change gears a little bit here. Um, I know you said everything fits under the bunny umbrella, so I'm going to try to put mangoes under there. Um, my story is about <laughs> the rise of mango as a to a commodity fruit, and um, the value of mango imports has gone up 15% in 2010, and it's been steadily increasing. It's become less of this exotic luxury fruit and more of a Western commodity. It's in salsas, it's in salads, it's more in restaurants and recipes. So my question is, is the mango in danger of becoming like a commodity fruit, like the banana, kind of a little more bland than it should be a little more than when you try it when it's come, coming from a place that's not shipped over very far. Um, and it actually has gone to that stage because five of the um, main mango varieties that we have here were developed in Florida and they were gathered from all over the world and cultivated to be these mangoes that would withstand long shipping distances that would have less bruising because American consumers don't like bruising. And now the National Mango Board, which was created in 2005, um, <laughs> wants to educate Americans how to cut a mango. That's one of the biggest, you know, mysteries. How do you cut this thing? How do you pick it? What is ripe? What is not ripe? Um, there are some green mangoes that people think aren't ripe, which they are. So that's their thing. And this is all pointing to signs that mango could become like the banana. Um, there are 2,500 mango varieties in the world growing all around the tropics. Um, but many people say that the mango won't become the banana because of the nature of the mango in this country. There are many growing immigrant communities in the country who come from these mango growing nations and they <laughs> are demanding their own varieties, their own methods of preparation, pickling the mangoes, doing what they want to the mangoes. And a testament to this is the fact that in 2007, George W. Bush struck a deal with India to import mangoes and we would export Harley Davidsons to India. <laughs> So we're also exporting our own great culture. And then this year, mangoes from Pakistan are going to arrive. And while they're in very sh small shipments and they're very expensive and they're mostly in ethnic niche markets, could this kind of mean that the mango is a different commodity crop where the commodity is not just the standard one type of mango, but the varieties start coming in and we see different. So who do you, really briefly, who do you want to talk to for this story? I want to talk to, I have talked to um, sort of mango ralliers, someone who is a senior tropical fruit curator at Botanical Gardens in Florida. They were the ones responsible for kind of creating this commodity, Western commodity mango. It's like the birthplace okay. of the, mm -hmm. I want to talk to someone who can give a little more perspective about the mango versus the banana, the mango versus other things that have come from this exotic place into a Western or, you know, so American. So what kind of person would that be? Um, a food culture professor, perhaps. Okay. Mm -hmm. Someone who's written we, a book. We hope there's someone like that. <laughs> Anybody? Who knows a lot about mangoes. Okay, so who else? Um, I also want to talk to maybe some people here in Chicago. Most of the reporting I've done already has been from Florida. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to two people, one, a, a husband and a wife team. The husband was, grew up in Florida. There's a little part I didn't mention, but Florida also has a lot of native mangoes that grow there. So he talked about 
the way he would eat the mango, just bite into the skin, not really uh, do this whole, he was like, I didn't even know there was a way to peel it. His wife was from New Jersey. She had just seen the National Mango Board website on how to peel a mango, the nice little slices, so you don't have to get your fingers dirty. So their contrast between, you know, like, I didn't the know consumer. how to, Yeah, the consumer. So I think that, um, you know, because you're looking at the development of a commodity fruit, I mean, sort of the, one of the more recent things is that they're, we're now allowed to, the regulations allow the importation of these more exotic mangoes. Um, you know, before that, there have been these pressures and, and measures that have taken place to commodify the fruit, um, et cetera. So you've got, you know, with, it's an economic story. She's framed this as an economic story. Um, but the people that you're thinking, of, that you've interviewed or thinking about interviewing are um, a plant breeder, um, a food culture professor, and then the consumers. So how would it change your story and how might it change not, not the ultimate content of the story, but, but how it's revealed in a more surprising and different way. If you thought about interviewing people who are in the business of mangoes, mm -hmm. in the mango business, like what's different? Because for us, if you, can do, if you can do a story that is, this is a food culture story, mm -hmm. that you already have made an economic story, what if you made it a business story? How might that be make it more surprising or interesting or just a different way of telling a story that is more appropriate for our show? Okay. So you're talking about like the grower or the, not the growers. Well, the... who do you think? I mean, who, when you think about business people, who might you want to talk to? Um, I think about the people who are just getting these Indian Pakistani mangoes, especially mm -hmm. right here in Chicago. There's a lot of stores that the are Indian, getting The Indian and Pakistani shops, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's the price of the mangoes, and is that something that is worth it for their communities versus um, just selling mangoes from South America and Central America? Well, um, who's the mango board? The mango board. The mango board is in your story. You I talked, talked about, to them. Uh -huh. Yeah, they um, they talk about trying to demystify the mango essentially. But, but, but who who are they? They are a commodities <laughs> board, and they were created because the every one cent of the pound of mangoes that comes in goes to the mango board. So they're responsible for promoting all mangoes, not from one particular country, just any mango that comes in from this, <laughs> with this volume is, falls under the mango board. So they don't try to promote one mango or the other. The, the fact that they promote is that you can get mangoes all year round in America. So who agreed to give a penny to them? Um, you don't know, I don't, I don't know, know either. <laughs> so. We have about two minutes. You know, so, so that's just like an example of, um, you know, the, they didn't become, mangoes didn't become more of a commodity fruit by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe it was the mango board, maybe it was mango growers, maybe it was some Chiquita Banana, you know, United Fruit, somebody like that who decided they would add mangoes to the, you know, I, I really don't know. Yeah. But I just think that sometimes the piece will sound a little bit more like it belongs in our program if you're looking at it in a kind of classically business way. Um, and also, you just may get a, a surprising, because you're not going to almost like the first person you think of, you may get a surprising take on it. Mm -hmm. And you'll, you might, you have an easier way to weave in um, some of the in information about the business of it. You, you know, I thought, I think that it's, you could do it with a food culture person, but you could also have a business person explain, well, the reason we use these five 
is that they don't bruise. You know, we've done studies and we know that Americans don't buy bruised fruit. Mm -hmm. Or, it, you see what I'm saying? So I think that uh, I would need, I would want to have at least one or two of the voices in the piece be not my food culture professor so much, mm -hmm. but get somebody else sort of in a little bit more circuitous way to, to make the same points. Um, and, and then that way it sounds like a marketplace story instead of a story you could put on five different shows. Okay. Yeah. And for, for someone may, like me who's not that well versed in business, can you just list a couple things? What makes a business story as opposed to an economic story? Oh, well, hmm. I, I mean, and sometimes it's just the nature <laughs> of the story. I mean, we do stories about, um, I mean, for me, economics is more what's the economy like, what's the Fed doing about it, um, that kind of thing. And a business story would be more like, you know, there is a business that is involved. So maybe like a, a, the housing bust and what we're going to do about it, that might be an economic story. But how is it affecting local realtors? That's probably a business story. Okay. Does that make Got sense? It. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, but anyway, I just... Yeah, and, and coming up with the people, because I think that it's also, you know, anybody who's a good reporter can do this. You don't have to have some special business reporting background. But just a little bit of a tweak in how you frame the story will make it just sound a little bit more like it belongs on the program. Okay. So we can talk about it more later, but. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks, Celeste. The, the other thing I wanted to say about both of the pitches was there were great laugh lines, um, and I could really imagine the story having some humor in it or just a wink, both of those stories, and that's something that we also really look for because, you know, there are people out there who expect business and economic stories to be really boring, and the fact that both of these pitches had humor I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I definitely agree. Do you, do you guys have any, any feedback on humor in a pitch, or do you like it? Oh, humor in a pitch is always—is this? Yeah, humor in a pitch is always for me is 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 incredibly helpful both in that um, uh, you know I personally enjoyed it enjoy it but um, also the way I don't know if this is this a similar process for you guys at your shows but. Uh, when I get a pitch that I think is going to work, uh, the way it works at our show is that I have to turn around and I, I pitch it to the rest of the staff in a weekly meeting. So if you have humor in your pitch, then I get the laugh line when I get to pitch it. Right. So and, and, I really and, appreciate that. And if Julie is being nice to you in your pitch conversation, her colleagues will not be nice to her at all. Right. You know, and so she's, you know, we have to be sort of extra feeling like we are behind it, you know, when we take it to a group of other people who didn't have a conversation conversation with you, maybe don't know you, don't like you, whatever. That's almost, you know, it's like, can I go into that room and give them the story and they won't laugh at me? If they won't laugh at me, then I'm like, okay, great, I should be taking that story. And, and whether it's verbal or written, and most of our pitches are written, if you have a joke or you have something clever to say or just a nice turn of phrase, it helps us know that you're going to write and produce a piece that has that creativity and those elements of storytelling. Yeah, the pitch should feel like the story that you want to tell, rather than sort of, you know, here, here are the five sentences that contain all the relevant facts. Um, the other thing is that you said that uh, people, what did you say, people expect uh, business and economic stories to be boring? Yeah. I think people expect most of what they hear on public radio to be boring and humorous. <laughs> and so for all of us, anything we bring to the table that is surprising and funny, you know, even if it's like, 
even if, even if it's a moment of humor or lightness in a story that may be serious, that may be heavy, that may even be tragic, um, th th that little bit of human, um, sort of the lightness coming through, I think is a really powerful thing in any story. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to ask you two to switch places if I can. David's going to take our, our next pitches. Um, our next pitcher is Ari Epstein. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he teaches at MIT, and he's the director of the Terrascope Youth Radio Program. They uh, teach teenagers how to make stories about the environment. Um, and I just David. also want to point out that Ari is one of two Ari's that we have pitching. Uh, another Ari pitched yesterday, Ari Daniel Shapiro, and they both have PhDs in oceanography, which I think is pretty amazing. So t teaching at MIT, do you know how a radio works? Yes. All right, so I'm intimidated going into this, and I feel like I have to be on my best with this man who knows how a radio works. Yeah, but it's just the under-the-hood stuff that's not important to people who are listening. So yeah, that I, just, that I know. That's how to get a hold of me if you need to after this. Okay, thank you. Um, the card so the, first. Interesting technique. Okay. So the, it's a story about um, a young woman named Wanda Diaz who's an astrophysicist, and in her early 20s she went blind, which for an astronomer is a real problem because a lot of the work they do is looking at graphs, looking at pictures, looking at animations, and it was kind of a personal crisis for her. And she uh, has now taken it on as her life's work to convert astronomy data into sound so that you can detect patterns by listening. Um, and she's found a real kind of peace and joy in the work that she's doing now. So the story really has a couple of parts. One of them is her own personal story. Um, from this horrible moment or horrible period to a kind of a revelatory moment she had through where she is now. Uh, and there's sort of bits and pieces along the way. So for example, uh, at one point, the software engineer she was working with uh, is someone who's deaf and will never hear the output of the program that she's working on. And for the two of them, just communicating at all was an interesting issue. So that's one piece of the story. Uh, another piece of the story is just the whole idea of listening to the universe, that you know, these eerie sounds are somehow reflective of what's going on out there. And then another piece of the story that I think is sort of optional depending on, on what you want, is this whole idea we're so used to thinking about things in terms of graphs and pictures and so on. A star is, you know, a twinkly thing out there. It's not a line on a piece of paper. So to some extent, a, a sequence of tones is as accurate a reflection of the reality as a line on a graph. You know, and if she had a way of converting it into smell, you know, a sequence of different smells, that would be another way of doing it. So it's really about how we perceive reality in that way. But I don't think that's crucial to the story. That's a, sort of a nice touch at the end. Mm -hmm. so, how, did she, um, how did she go blind? Uh, through diabetes. Uh -huh. And she, there's actually in the interview I did with her, she spent some time talking about how she knew she had diabetes, she knew it was an issue, and she ate sweets, and she ate bread, and she sort of hid snacks and so on. And, you know, she said, well, I had a great time then, and, you know, and now I just need to be more careful. So it's sort of, it's, she's kind of an amazing person. Wow. And at what point in her career, I mean, was she able to complete her work in astrophysics and become an astrophysicist? Well, that? it's what she's doing now. She's, this is, this, yeah, she's finishing up her, up her doctorate now. Okay. So. Um, we've actually aired a couple of stories on Studio 360 about um, creative projects yep. involved in converting um, one kind of information into, actually all of them have been about sound. Um, well, you had the crocheting. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm thinking specifically. Too, yeah. Actually, uh, we've, there were at least two pieces about different um, ways in which people were using um, scientific data and converting them into into a sonic experience, an oral experience. Um, neither of them involved a blind astrophysicist and a deaf <laughs> computer programmer. Which, which somehow, it sounds like it feels vaguely like the setup to a joke that you it don't want to hear. 
I have to um, tell you, when I'm, when I'm sitting, sitting with her and interviewing her. I thought you were pulling my leg. When I read it, I was like, oh, he's pulling my leg. So I'm sitting with her and interviewing her, and she's just talking. She says, oh, yeah, and I was over to so-and-so, and she's deaf. And she just kept going. And, you know, you can sort of hear me goggling in the background, going, wait, wait, could you, could you, could you say that again, please? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So do you want to hear? I've got some sound from the interview. I've got some of the music. What, what I, I, I would be curious um, to hear tape as, as we move along. But so sure. a couple of things about the pitch. Um, one question I have about work like this is, um, can she use... Can she use this data? Is, it, is, is this a sort of a creative project for her, or is this actually part of how she is now going to do her work as a scientist, is literally by ear? Because I've never heard that before. It is part of how she's going to do her work as a scientist, but her goal is not to outfit the world's blind astrophysicists with a new tool, um, but to help sighted people. Because there's studies out there that show that if you're listening to something while you're also watching something, you perceive it more deeply. And so the idea is that for people who are sighted, if they can watch the data evolve on a screen and also hear the soundtrack of that, they may be able to pick up things that either track alone wouldn't do. And that's really who her her target is, astronomers in general, not just people like her. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, What is the the sort of um, the end point of the story? You know, I, I, I... I can, I can hear almost a sort of a chronological, like a lifeline yep. to this, of what point this happens, at what point she undertakes this project. But where, where is she now with this? What, where is your story going to end up, the story you are telling about Wanda? I think it's not a story about scientific achievement so much as about maybe her personal journey. So uh, it's possible that the end point of the story is, you know, I, at one point I ask her, what have, what have you learned from all of this? And she has some pretty nice things to say about what she's learned from that process. What are are some of those nice things? Um, Can I just have her tell you, because she's better at it? Sure. Okay, Okay. so um, this is track six, please. Do you feel like you're learning from the experience? What are you learning? Well, I'm learning a lot of physics. I'm learning to listen. I'm learning to have patience. I'm learning not to get bored. I'm learning not to give up. I'm learning to meet other people and exchange whatever I'm doing, no matter how crazy it sounds. Uh, I'm learning to trust myself and, and I'm learning to rely. I'm learning to, um, to believe, to never give up. Wow. She's pretty good. She's pretty deep. You didn't say in your pitch that she had a strong accent. I did sort of an important piece of information. Okay. Um, I mean, she sounds pretty great. The room in here is a little boomy, and so yeah. I would say it's hard for me to make her out, but I have yeah. a feeling it actually sounds pretty I don't, good and I don't, clear. I don't perceive that in, in talking to her in, or in the tape, but, if, but that's, I don't know. Do you guys think that's hard to understand? Yeah. It was the acoustics of the room. Acoust- yeah. I think it is okay. the acoustics of the room that made it a little hard for me yeah. to hear her, but I think her accent, I mean, her, her voice is lovely. Yeah. She has absolutely like a gorgeous speech pattern. Where is she from? Uh, she's from Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and she's studying at the University of Glasgow, and I met her at Harvard. Okay. This is the least boring astrophysics story ever pitched. No, I'm sorry. See, there you are. I'm sorry. No. Don't tell Jad I said that. No, I'm not sure. Um, Okay. Well, if you don't take the story, I'm pitching it to him. So. See, now that's what you do. Turn the pressure up. You know, there is something at stake for me here. If I'm like, if I'm going to sit here waffling, saying, okay, well, let me talk to my team. I'm like, he's going to take it to Jad, and then I'll look like a jerk. I think it's happened before, hasn't it? <laughs> it may have happened. Uh, I think it's happened before. Um, uh, I think it's a really, really strong story. I would like to hear more of her tape. Okay. We um, want to hear. Do we have time? What's our time? Yeah, we have about two minutes. Okay. 
Um, let me tell you about her. Let's do track two, which is the moment when she figured out what she was going to do with her life. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what am I going to do? I'm, doing a I'm do studying physics, and I'm losing my sight, and these people, they're just in labs measuring things and looking at itty bitty tiny numbers. And I went to the astronomy lab, <coughs> and I heard the audification of the signal the, the antenna was detecting. So it sounds like when you turn your radio, there's no radio station. You just have only noise, like white noise. Um, and then I heard I mean, that um, the amplitude increased, the volume. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, I, I guess, we guess it's a sunburst, but we have to confirm that. And then I said, ah, oh, I can use this to do my physics. Okay. How specific can she get in terms of how, how she uses it in her physics? Um, well, there's this, a, as a scientific tool, how clear, how clear can we be about how this, how this works? Okay, so for example, one example that I've got is uh, she's tracking data from a particular star that's sort of unimportant right now, what the star is and what it's doing. But one of the things that's happening is that these waves that are traveling towards the Earth, and they're getting a little bit out of step with each other. And you can hear that in the data, and that's that is, she's. Um, let's do this. Let's do track nine, where she's trying to explain to me what she's listening for. Here we have about one minute. I'm oh, sorry. Like if you have, if you would be playing two strings at once at certain points. There. There. See? Um, and she has a nice, we don't have time for it, but she has a lovely explanation of what that's like. It's like two people walking down the street in step, and then one of them takes a little sort of a shuffle step and gets ahead of the other. And so they're out of phase with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. And is it light. easier for her to pick that up by ear than by, than by looking at it on a graph? For her, yes. For her. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to want to. I'm going to want to find out a little bit more. But, 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 but for example, for, so another clip that we also don't have time for okay. is her asking me, "What do I see?" Showing me the graph and playing me the sound, and to me, the sound seems more highly resolved than the picture. So yes. Okay. All right. So, um, I want to talk to you more. This is a really terrific okay. story, Great. and I'm glad that you brought it Super. to me. Super. Well, thank okay. you. Terrific. Great. Thank you. So I just want to ask quickly, how important is the, like a pitch like that that really has an example of ambient sound that's quite interesting? How important is that to each of you? Um, that he was able to play me the sound? Yeah, or just that the story has interesting ambient sound in it. Is that like a, a big draw for you? Um, you know, in this case, because we've aired a couple of stories that are actually about a similar sort of, the scientific part of this is familiar to me, um, it was not going to sell me on it. Um, what I was really sold by here and is just kind of astonishing is the personal, this woman's sort of personal arc and having that, you know, that's a rare thing in uh, science pieces to have such a very, very strong human, like, just powerful personal story. And the fact that she's like cramming sweets while she knows that she's going to go blind. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a moment that you, that's like a, I don't know, like, 
Can I say the word driveway moment if I'm not an NPR employee? <laughs> um, that's a really powerful moment that I think will get a lot of people's attention because that is, whether you are a blind astrophysicist or not, that's the kind of moment that almost anyone listening can seize on in a certain way and land on. Like, holy shit, is she really going to, like, she really did that? You know, and it makes you think about all the, you know, the time when you've done something incredibly foolish and rash and self-destructive. You know, maybe not that self-destructive, but, um, but everyone can land on that for a moment. So that's a wonderful thing in a profile about a blind astrophysicist from Puerto Rico. So to, just to follow up on what you said, is that how you would frame this story from the point of view of the pitcher? Would you kind of say this is a story about someone who kind of, you know, indulged and crashed and burned and had to pick up the pieces? I don't know if I would necessarily make that the first thing that we, that we learn about her. I mean, it depends how, you know, it depends how important that... I'm not sure. I would need to know more about the story, I think, to figure out if that's something I'm really going to foreground or if that's a moment that, that we're going to land on and give a certain kind of attention and space to and let people, let people process for a bit. Great. Thanks. So we'll move on unless you guys want to say something about ambient sound. No? Okay. Okay. So we have another, another picture for David. His name is Peter Salomon. Peter, you can come on up. Um, he's currently pursuing an MFA in documentary film at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's new to radio. Um, he's currently working with the folks at Winston-Salem's NPR affiliate WFDD to learn the craft. Thank you. Hi. Well, you guys talked about the importance of humor in a pitch, and I'm going to be cheating because I'm going to play a clip later from a stand-up comedy act. So this is a pitch about humor. And I never realized how important, I've been inter interested in comedy for a long time, particularly live comedy, stand-up and improv, but I never realized how important it was to me until about a week after September 11th, 2001. Uh, I still couldn't quite wrap my head around what had happened, it was so surreal, but when I, I was finally able to kind of come to terms with it when I saw David Letterman's first broadcast after 9-11, he was the first uh, talk show host to come back on the 17th. And it was fascinating to watch him kind of struggle with that on the air. It obviously was not a normal episode, but I found it very compelling because this is somebody whose job is to not take anything seriously. And I wondered what was going through his mind as he prepared for that show. And a couple of years later, I visited a comedy club in New York for the first time, and I was surprised at how intimate the setting is. It's very, it was, most clubs are like this very small, Everybody's very close together, the audience and the performer. And I thought back to that Letterman show, and um, not to take anything away from him, but the television art is, is very different because there's a distance there. But with these live clubs, everything is, again, m much more intimate. So I wondered what it was like to work as a stand-up comic in New York City in the days and weeks following 9-11. And I wondered what it was like to attend those shows. So I'd like to tell the story of what it was like to be in the New York City comedy scene in this very specific period of time, September through October and November, right then and there. And I'm going to tell this story through archival material from that, uh, from that time period and with interviews with generals, um, with managers from these comedy clubs, the performers themselves, frequent audience members, and a professor who's studying humor through uh, the Department of Theater at Wake Forest University who can put it all in kind of a larger cultural context. Okay. Um, and so are you, are you thinking about this explicitly as a September 11th, 2011 story? Yes. I mean, we will be coming up on the 10-year anniversary, so I think there's going to be a lot of programming in the next year all about 
you know, That's kind of bet. looking back. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, but, this, but this is, this is my first, this is my first official pitch or real thought about how to deal with September uh, 11th, 2011. Well, th I mean, there will be a lot of important stories, but I don't want this one to get lost in the shuffle because, um, so much of American comedy can be traced back to the comedy clubs of New York City, and that's where I really think that comedy began to regroup, first within the minds of these people that had to go back to work mm -hmm. that week. Uh, you know, New York City officials were telling people to get back to their daily lives, to get back to their jobs, and this included the comedians, and there were some clubs that were open for business on September 12th, and I just want to know what it was like to be in that environment, and the uh, the comedians that talk about it, whether it's in print or um, there have been some you know television interviews about it, it's uh, very emotional for them, and it seemed like a very cathartic experience for everyone in uh, in the audience and as well as behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. There have been some television interviews with people about it. I mean, so this is a really this is this is an interesting subject, and and looking back at September 11th through the lens of comedy. Um, does feel like there could be something interesting there um, and sort of surprising. Um, I'm not sure who you, like, I, I want to know more about who you want to talk to. Mm. The fact that there are plenty of comedians, um, I would want the pitch, I would want to know who I'm going to hear from. Sure. And also what, what they are going to tell me. Mm. Um, so you're sort of presenting to me like the questions that you might ask them, um, but I'm curious to know what they would, what they have to say. Sure. Um, because a piece like this can really like rise or fall on how articulate people can be about that moment. Um, when you talk about television interviews that you've seen, what's been done on this subject? Nothing has been done on this subject specifically. There are only bits and pieces on this subject matter um, inside larger interviews with comedians. Uh, it happens on a lot of radio shows and podcasts where they'll be interviewing a comedian just in general, and then the subject of 9-11 might come up, and everybody's kind of got a different story. So I have not heard too much material on it, but I'd like to sort of consolidate what there is, those stories that are out there, and then ask these new questions. So uh, would it be all right if I played a, a selection from... Sure. Yeah, this ahead. is uh, from... <coughs> this is not the type of archival material that I would include in this story, but it's uh, a comedian reflecting on this time period in his act. He actually wrote it into his act, so I'm going to play a selection for this. It is, I want to say that, uh, it's, sorry, it's, it's censored for the virgin public radio ears. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing city. People, people just, it's, it's so, so, people are so crazy and resilient. The plane crashes here in the Hudson River. Plane crashes in the Hudson. And the rest of the country, this is like a heroic deed, you know? Here in New York, like, what the f***? Something is traffic, some dude. <laughs> Couldn't he have crashed in Connecticut or some <laughs> He's got to... Even after 9-11, we did shows almost right away. We started doing shows really quickly in the clubs around the city. In some parts of the city, there wasn't even electricity in some parts of the city yet. The subway didn't even go there. But we started doing shows in these clubs because people seemed to want to come out. They seemed to want to laugh. And, and I, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was, it was right after 9-11, and there were already people in the audiences, bachelorettes, bachelorette parties. And I thought, holy Okay, you know, that's I, fine. I, I never thought that I would be proud. It goes on with more bleeps. Right. All right. Who performed on September 12th? Well, a lot of these comedy clubs have kind of stables of comedians that perform there regularly. There's a bit of territoriality, but that's sort of another part of the story about the um, breaking down of that kind of territoriality and the stereotypical New York attitude. Uh, one of the people who I spoke to who is the director of an improv comedy group in New York who came from L.A. two months before September 11th talked about how 
over the years after 9-11, the scenes kind of switched in that LA used to seem more open to people and open to new performers and New York was kind of more closed off and now it's, it's in the 10 years past, she says it's almost switched completely. So you had a lot of you know, amateurs that were just starting out and perhaps it might have seemed to them to be kind of a bad time to start out, but I think that it's, it would be a story about the regrouping of this, of this you know, specific scene after this really traumatic event. We've and got, we've got so, about one minute. Sure. Okay. So there are there are a lot of you know comedians that are that are that have moved on to bigger things and a lot that are still working okay. the same. Clubs. I think um, you're, you're you're starting to turn a little bit from from using comedy as a lens to look at how people responded to September 11th. You're starting to turn toward what was the impact of September 11th on the comedy scene. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I would want to like I think if you bring back a pitch that talks about um, specifically like what did people say about September 11th on September 12th. Who was involved? Who would you talk to in a story? Um, not just the general kinds of people, but who, who do you know who is incredibly funny or incredibly insightful on this? Um, comedians, um, one reason we don't hear as much about comedy is because what they do is perform and they don't necessarily have or want to give you that much insight into, their, into <laughs> what they do. Um, and if that happens, then you're, then you're, you're, you're ham, you're something tied, hogtied, is that a word? Mm-hmm. Th- thank you, hamstrung, thank you. Um, so you would really want to try to define, this is an interesting terrain for you to explore, it's not a story yet. Um, but I would encourage you to keep exploring this terrain and try to define for yourself the story that you can bring in. And, and I applaud you for thinking um, about the long lead on this. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much. So what I took away from that is that it's a, it's a pretty great idea to have your talkers and be able to name your talkers and sort of describe the kind of voices uh, and you, we would hear in a story specifically yeah. at this phase. This, this, I mean, the story is about people, you know, and, and although the issue may be the important thing that sells it ultimately, the story itself is not, is not about an issue. The story is about people, you know. The, the, our medium is just people talking, and so what people are going to talk. You know, and that, that I thought, you know, that was a note that, uh, that you gave to the people that you were speaking with, mm-hmm. Celeste, and I think that's, that's really relevant here. I, I think that the other thing I thought about with this is that, um, with other pitches that we have heard and get all the time, is that, you know, there's a difference between a pitch and a question or an issue or the beginning of an idea, and whether it's the people you're going to talk to or... You know, I was really curious about what is something surprising that one of those comedians that you'd already talked to, let's imagine, what did, what did they said? That gives me a, a feel for what the story is actually going to be, not just what are the interesting questions that you're going to ask. And, and I think that's the hardest part of the pitch because, in fact, you have to make an investment right. in a pitch. Right. Um, you, it can't be something you just dash off because the pitch tells us not only what the story is about, but kind of what kind of storyteller you're going to be. And, and that clip, incidentally, was not, that was not a real seller, because it did kind of make me think, wow, if, if, if that's the kind of humor that he's got about September 11th, like, I, I, who cares? That's not, it's not surprising, it's not really good. Um, so you might want to be careful with, with, with what you play, in terms of how it represents the kind of ideas that we're going to hear about. Thank you. So we're going to switch it up and have our, our last editor, Julie Snyder, take two pitches. Um, our next pitcher is going to be Sabiha Khan. Uh, Sabiha, you can come up. 
Um, Sabia is based in Los Angeles, and she worked for two years as a, an associate producer at Youth Radio. Um, she also has a doctorate in English from the University of Michigan. And um, she's currently producing a multimedia series for the Early Modern Studies <coughs> Institute at the University of Southern California. So she's done radio and multimedia. <clears throat> Hello. Um, my story has a long lead as well. It's a post-9-11 story, okay. um, and it's about um, Muslim Americans and the War of Terror. Um, but it's, it's a different story in the sense that it's not a story about, uh, you know, in, um, unjust detentions or, you know, wiretaps or anything like that. It's, about, it's a story about a poet whose poetry got him in trouble. And... Um, so the kind of larger tension of the story is, um, you know, and this happened in, nine, in 2006, so the larger point of the story or tension is that five years after 9-11, you know, what's the status of free expression, artistic expression um, in this country? And particular, particularly for um, minorities. Um, so the story centers on um, one man, his name is Fazil Johan. And he's a mild-mannered man. He's uh, an IT professional. He does customer service. He's very friendly. There's not one threatening thing about this guy. Um, and poetry is really important to him. It's, it's a big part of his identity. And um, not just um, from a kind of abstract sense of art, art but it's, it's a cultural identity. And it's important to note that um, in um, Pakistan and North India, Poetry, uh, particularly Urdu poetry, poetry is um, it's a forum for uh, it's a safe space for critique, social political critique. Um, so um, for Fazil, poetry really becomes a way to express himself as he's growing up. And um, I, I'll note that he grew up in his early life in Pakistan, moved to uh, the Middle East um, later on, and then he arrived in the United States at 16, and he um, was in New Orleans for a while. So then the kind of artistic, um, uh, um, it was 1980, so post-punk, or he was, you know, absorbed by punk music, multicultural area, so he really kind of, his identity as an artist, uh, person of expression, really got forged in this time. So I'd like to play a clip, uh, just briefly, about Fazil and his connection to his poetry. Okay. Urdu poetry is so embedded in everyday life that in Pakistan, in every office, there are two, two pictures. One is Qadi Azam, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder, and then the co-founder is considered Allama Iqbal, who is a poet and a philosopher. He also wrote a lot of poetry, which, which is inspirational, with the main purpose being to, to wake up the Indian people, to inspire them to kick out the British colonizers and so that India would become free again. Uh, one of his uh, poems, which is in the textbooks for children, it's called Bache Ki Dua, which means the child's prayer. And we used to sing it, so it goes something like, Labbeyati Hadua Banke Tamanna Meri. Zindagi shamma ki surat ho khudaya meri. It's, uh, what it's saying is, um, I have a wish which comes to my lips in the form of a prayer. My prayer is that may my life be like a, a beacon light, like that Statue of Liberty image.
Okay, so that gives you a sense of you know, his, his way of being, his connection to poetry, what it means for him in terms of self-expression. So um, one day in 2006, he was sitting in his cubicle and his manager comes up to him and says, there's some people here to see you. Um, it's the FBI. So instantly he, basically Fazil was like, oh, my time has come. Because since 2001, he knew scores of friends who'd been detained or questioned for no good reason. So now he was like, okay, now it's my turn, you know. Um, and since 2001, he had this kind of vague feeling that it was gonna happen at some point, he just couldn't predict when. Um, now, so, since so, 2001, you know, po poetry is really uh, important to him. So, but, and he really wanted to write something about the kind of hyper-patriotic feeling that was in the air, um, and the kind of incident, incidents of Islamophobia that were kept on occurring. So, but he, he held his tongue. He, he didn't want to offend anyone. Um, so for five years, he didn't really write anything about his feelings about um, the yellow ribbons and the God Bless America signs everywhere. But then in 2006, he's like, what the hell, I'm gonna write something. So he does, and he posts this on this progressive left-leaning website called choke.com, which is, it's a website for Indian-Pakistani understanding. So, I mean, it's, you know, the whole point is to create community among common cultures. It's not anything about being radical or anything like that. Okay, so we're about, we're almost five minutes in, so oh, I'm okay. gonna stop you and, and ask Julie, what do you wanna know? Okay, Next. so why yeah. don't you, what, what are you left what wondering happened? about? Okay, what happened? Okay, yeah. so basically, um, sorry, okay, so, um, so basically, um, the, the arc of the story is that um, he gets, his, it's about his questioning. And it's funny because it, turn, it's, it turns into a kind of literary, a session of literary analysis. Like, the feds start asking questions like, who is your audience? And what does this word mean? And... Fazil is interesting because, I mean, he kind of um, boned up on what his rights are, you know, like he knew that he wasn't really supposed to talk to the feds without a lawyer present, but he was like, you know what, I believe in my poetry so much that I'm just going to talk without a lawyer present and I'm going to actually explain what it is I was trying to communicate in these poems. And by the end of the session... Were the poems in Urdu or were the poems in English? They're in English, oh, okay. but they are inspired by the Urdu literary tradition. Okay. So um, by the end of the session, the, you know, the, po the FBI agents were like, wow, we understand your poetry now. And <laughs> wow, this is really cool. I mean, seeing is believing. We know, we know that you're not a terrorist. And so um, that's kind of like the end point. But then there's a kind of lingering kind of footnote that, you know, he still feels, Fazil still feels kind of restrained in his expression. Like he doesn't know if... Because the FBI has said, you know, the Department of Homeland Security might be contacting you, so just be prepared for that. Um, even though we had such a great literary session right here. So um, that's really what it's about. And, you know, this, the stories focus on him as a character. And possibly there might be a scene with us going to a poetry reading. Mm -hmm. So that's about it. Okay, so we've got about three minutes. Okay. So, so, so you were saying you were saying that it kind of turned into sort of a literary analysis with the FBI agents. Did it really, or was it mainly just only in the way of kind of saying, you know, well, what does this mean, and uh, 
I mean, it, like, like, I mean, were they, I think what I would want is if it literally went into the realm of starting to talk about what it means when, I don't even know what words I'm using. Yeah. Did you have a, did they just say you had a, a PhD in literature or a master's Yeah, but don't let that. Okay, well, you, yeah. but you know the words. <laughs> like, what are the words, like, if, if, if they start talking about, you know, the use of imagery and what water can often signify, especially in a larger <laughs> political context of when you have the, you know, and what is the tree? The tree really <laughs> represents, like, did they have that kind of discussion or was it a little well, bit Well, they more? actually did. I mean, it's not like they were asking those questions, but Fazil used it as an opportunity to teach them mm -hmm. the, the depth of meaning. And they were like, oh, so that's how it kind of worked. Okay, I see what you're saying. I think it's a hard story to do in that you're driving toward the arc of that moment in that meeting, but I'm not positive that like kind of enough happens in that moment mm -hmm. and in that meeting because there is sort of the, um, I'm afraid you would be in a position, you and Fazil, in terms of telling the story of where you would be having to bring out so much more uh, humor and surprise and extraordinariness from that moment of that you know of of their questioning that you could see the mechanics of you guys trying to fight through the story in a way that would be do you know what i'm saying that like that it would be apparent because on the other hand you could say well they were worried about his poem they went to go interview him he explained that the poem was not nearly as threatening or radical or whatever or incendiary as, as they had thought. They said, oh, you're a really nice guy. Sorry about it. Thanks for your time. Bye. You know, and then it feels kind of like, oh, all right. You know, and I can understand of him feeling a little nervous afterwards, but, you know, it sounds like also that wasn't that much different than how he felt for the five years before. So I'm not sure, like, what changed in that moment. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So we've just got about 30 seconds. Okay. So what would you think would make it a better story, or do you think it's just not a This American Life type thing? I, I, think, I think if in that meeting that somebody realized something that was surprising, or somebody had um, an exchange that seemed very unlike them or changed them in some way, then, then that could work. But I feel like if that feels light or thin, it's a hard story to do. I think it's a hard story to do then. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm curious whether um, you have made inquiries or whether you thought of uh, getting that story from the perspective of the FBI agent. Oh, can one do that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You probably know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they can oh, talk yeah. under some circumstances. It doesn't mean they, they yeah, you may that, not necessarily that get to that That would be amazing, person. but maybe I can work on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I doubt that that would seem like super sensitive to them. I think the FBI would be out for it. Okay, mm -hmm. thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Sabiha. Um, I, I would love to take, <coughs> take one, uh, a question from the audience for Julie, just to, if anyone wants to follow up on that or if you have a different question for Julie. Well, if she did ask the FBI agent, I mean, to me, it would be a very interesting story to, to know whether poetry could have changed their perspective. It, that I, you're classically in the position there, though, if it depends on what they said. Right. You know, so I think in a pitch kind of situation, and 
this is sort of similar with the the 9/11 comedy story. That for us, so much of it comes down to well, it depends on what they said, uh, because you're just as likely to call the FBI and for them to say, uh, no, no, we just want to. You know, there are a couple of things that raise red flags for us, but then when we went to go talk to him, it was clear that um, he didn't mean it in any kind of you know incendiary spirit. So uh, it was fine. But no, I didn't see it as any kind of big poetry. Uh, schooling. Yeah, it, it seems to me. It seems to me that that if anyone had a transformational moment of the kind that you were talking about, it's not. I'm sorry, I forgot his name. Fazil. It's not Fazil. It's the FBI agent. If the FBI agent in that moment actually learned something, gained an interest in Urdu poetry, or just found himself completely surprised that he was not interrogating a suspect, but you know, learning about the use of metaphor in Urdu poetry, like that can be really amazing. But I'm not sure we don't that's know if a story, happened. though. I don't even know. See, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not even sure that'd be a story. Yeah. I mean, FBI agents, I'm sure, are learning stuff about, like, you know, I don't know, different cultures, and particularly Middle Eastern and Arab cultures, all the time in the interviews. Like, I'm not quite sure that gives them deeper understanding and cultural that, that appreciation. Be, that I'm may just be not an optimistic sure. assessment of the FBI. <laughs> yeah, that could be true. But I just Only wouldn't totally, it, totally, it wouldn't totally surprise me. I think it would be a hard thing to do. It would be a hard. And, and when you end up of saying, and in the end, I felt like I really understood. I really understood this better. I feel like you'd need something to demonstrate. So what? Like, what does it mean? So it didn't just kind of feel like empty talk, you know? Um, and we really dialogued, you know? Like, you wouldn't want to go any, anywhere like that. Okay, thanks. So we can bring up our next picture, which is our last picture of the conference. Stephanie Stiavetti, you can come on up. Um, Stephanie is a New Voices recipient this year. It's her first time at Third Coast. She is a freelance writer. She's, she was in IT for eight to ten years, and she's a self-described tech nut and narrative junkie. So she's just getting her start in radio now. So I have a stalker, but he's not your regular kind of stalker. He's an Amazon.com stalker. And what this random person has done is he has summarily emptied my Amazon wish list by sending me gifts sort of constantly over the past year and a half. And yeah. So he's not a totally random person. He's somebody I knew in junior high school. Oh, okay. He was the poor kid that everybody picked on and I think that I was nice to him once and he has somehow 25 years later latched onto me as this person. I'm not really sure why. The really creepy factor about it is that he has no internet presence. So if you Google him, he's like nowhere. And he has a really original name. So it's really strange that he has like no presence on the internet whatsoever. But the point of the story is that this has really brought about uh, some parts of my personality that I'm not very happy with. So not only am I keeping the gifts, which I'm uncomfortable with, but... <laughs> I found myself adding like a thousand dollar camera <laughs> to my wish list. Did you get it? No, he, he didn't buy it. Um, um, what, so wait, what has he bought? He has bought, I had to buy a new bookshelf to accommodate all the books that he bought me. Um, he bought me a humidifier, <laughs> which was really handy when I had a cold. Um, he bought- wait, go back. <laughs> when, how did this first start? I just, so the very opening story is interesting. Uh, my husband got laid off and I was sitting on the step sort of. How long ago was this? About a year and a half ago. Okay. And I'm sitting on the step and I'm just like, crap, I can't believe this happened. And this, the UPS guy shows up and hands me a box and I open it up and it's a copy of uh, Julia Child's uh, it was Mastering the Art of French Cooking. 
And I'm looking at this book, and I'm like, I know I took an Ambien a couple days ago, but I don't remember actually <laughs> buying this book. So I put it on the table and like went about my other worries. And then a couple hours later, I picked it up, and I started to kind of look at the invoice, and I realized that it's got somebody else's name on it, and it's got a dollar amount. And I was like, well, I could see myself doing that, buying somebody a gift randomly that I hadn't seen in 20 years. But over the next couple months... Oh, because it had his name on it. It had his name on it. Uh-huh. And over the next couple months, I proceeded to get boxes and boxes and boxes to the point that my neighbor called me and says, you've gotten a box and I actually can't lift it. And I'm not really sure what's in it. Um, and I hadn't ordered anything, so I came rushing home and there was about 35 books in that box. <laughs> yeah, and he had cleared off a quarter, quarter of my wish list in that one just shipment. And, you know, this, this kind of bring something up about myself that I didn't know about and that I don't really like. I don't want to be keeping these gifts. I really don't want to be adding cameras to my wish list, but I am. And so this seems to me to be a really good exploration of uh, a darker side of myself that I'm not really happy about. And I have this sort of like self-deprecating sort of funny tone, and I want this to be sort of a self-deprecating narrative essay uh, that also explores, you know, where I'm going. And I have two pieces of audio, so if we could play the first. So I'm, I'm trying to think of how to frame it in a way that would be more helpful in terms of how it really feels, really feels to just when you open these packages and find these books and then go in your house and see them in your house, what, what feelings do you have? I mean, that's what I would uh, focus on. There's definitely a feeling of shame and disappointment in myself for keeping these gifts and for adding even more expensive things to, the, to my wish list. Yet, I still feel compelled to keep these gifts, and I am keeping them, and I'm not necessarily happy with that side of myself. And that's actually the whole point of this piece, was that I have this Amazon stalker, which in and of itself is strange. You know, it's, very, it's a bizarre story. But then it sort of opened up this can of worms and gave me this view into my self into my personality and showed me something I really wasn't happy with. So since his address is on the invoices, I grabbed a friend from junior high and we went and stalked him back and we drove around his house and sat up on a hill and sort of stared down at the house and tried to figure out what the deal was. Um, and then I started talking to people and people were generally in one of two camps. One, they were like, dear God, you need to send back the gifts. He's going to show up at your door with an ax. And then other people were like, great, can you add, you know, my camera to the list? That, can you send me something too? And so I, what I want to do is I, I interviewed my therapist and I want to interview some people as well that sort of take uh, opposing viewpoints. And I have one more piece of audio. What for you would make it weird? And this is something that I should maybe be concerned about or should maybe not accept the gifts. I think, that's a, I think that's a personal choice, that's a personal opinion. You know, do you have a dollar amount that makes you feel uncomfortable? Um, I don't know, that's a very good question, actually. If he were to buy you a brand new power book, would that be too far versus $1,000 worth of books? I'd really like a new power book. <laughs> but I think that perhaps that might be going too far. So that's sort of where the story's at right now. What do you think? I think it's totally crazy. That's so, that's so, I think, um, yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you about it. I think you have to, you have to get in touch with him. Like you have to, like there's no way to do the story and go around it. Um, I don't think he's dangerous. Honestly, I've talked to a couple people that have seen him over the past decade and he's just really awkward. 
And I sent him a little note card and was like, hey, what's the deal? And he never replied, but continued to send me stuff, which was nice. And, you know, <laughs> he, uh, I would be willing to go talk to him, actually. In fact, I'm really curious, and this might give me sort of the boost that I need to be like, what the hell are you thinking? Thanks, by the way, but I want to know why. I think you have to, yeah. I think, like, the, the um, I think it's a really amazing story, and uh, I think, like, you, your feelings about uh, whether or not to accept them uh, and how complicated that feels and that like you don't want to want them but you do want them is I think that's very interesting I think that though you're the difficulty in the tricky part of the story is how far do you go when you're interviewing your therapist you know you're heading into very very like tricky realms you know what i mean like cuz you could get right into the heart of navel gazing you know of just like of where it feels like why would anyone care about this and so but i think that it's interesting because you were saying like also in your pitch that your therapist has insights of where this you know this acceptance of packages for you dates you know it, it's tied back to your childhood and like where you felt deprived and so i think i think that that's interesting and i think you could also have fun with it but i think like the the tricky realm is like saying like so the interesting thing about the story is the way that i'm responding to it when the whole time being all like i think maybe the really interesting thing is about this really really sad guy who only had one person be nice to him once in junior high and now has like he clearly has some sort of i don't know i mean he's probably not totally normal do you think it's really creepy it's pretty creepy. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a while to kind of, like I thought it was creepy, and then no. I and I like nice that you and... said in the email that you, your husband doesn't really think it's that weird, and he doesn't really have many feelings about it. And yeah. I think that's totally interesting as well. That like he's kind of just all like, yeah, well, what he said. You. He said it, it makes him look bad because he doesn't buy me anything. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. I mean, if you, if you think that this would make the story a better story, yeah, yeah. I think you should definitely, you should definitely, definitely talk to him. Yeah. What sort of questions should I ask him? You guys have got about two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think like you would want to talk to him both about why is he doing this, um, you know, how, how he got around to doing this, talking to him about the way that it makes you feel. Um, but I think also wanting to know a little more about his life and uh, just like where do things stand right now, you know? I think like you might be surprised the thing you might find that, that he is a really relatable person and kind of a tragic figure and talks emotionally and that you, you understand everything he says. Or you, you might also find that, that, um, that he's off you know, when you talk to him. And that, like, uh, that's always a difficult thing when you're when to, to interview somebody who clearly is, um, you know, has some sort of uh, mental illness or something like that because, uh, you know, the range of normal behavior has been, you know, broadened so much, and so the things that they're doing aren't necessarily rational or make sense and stuff, but um, I don't know. I think it would be just, you know, you'd want to find out kind of what he's doing and why. Do you want him to stop? Is it, do you want me to be honest? Yeah. Probably not. How long is your wish list? <laughs> right now, it's about six pages long. <laughs> Have you and you've continued adding? Well, I mean, it's my, my wish list. And my family uses it, and so I add stuff here and there. Um, a lot of it is just you know, it's here Amazon, so it's like I want this book or I want this you know whatever, and uh, you know, I didn't. 
I didn't, you know, fill it up just so he would buy me stuff. I use it. And so it's sort of odd that he uses it as well, and my family uses it. And so I took it down for a little while, and then my mom complained. Um, so I put it back up, and then I got another box. And it's just some, sort of this weird thing, and it, it, it defies any sort of definition. But do you think it that really I can does. keep an elephant, uh, an elephant, an element of myself in this? Sort of exploration of like oh Amazon. absolutely absolutely you know I think that your feelings and your complicated feelings are totally interesting and I think like the the reactions that you get from your friends and the reactions that you get from your husband and I even think that the therapist too like I think it's all very interesting um, and I think you would all want to keep it in the story but I think like the trick of the structuring and the balance of it is trying to to figure out how much of that goes in there when he kind of looms pretty large and, and maybe the things he's struggling with are even bigger. Even bigger. I know his mom died when he was a little and that was, when, that was one of the things the kids picked on him for. Oh, God, really? Yeah, you know, I remember they used to tease him, Peter, you don't have a mom, you know, you're gonna be all messed up when you're, I mean, kids are horrible when they're, you know, what, how old are we, 10, 11, What was 12. the nice thing you did to him? I was just nice to him. He was in my classes, but I remember this poor kid used to like not go on field trips because he was like terrified. And, I mean, I don't know what happened to the people that picked on him. They're probably dead or in jail. But, you know, he, I always remember him being a really nice guy, really? you know. And it, it really bummed me out that people were mean to him. But at the same time, he was sort of a social pariah, so you couldn't, like, go be yeah. his friend because it would be, like, social suicide. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of us sort of towed the line. I wasn't a super popular kid either, so. He didn't go to high school with you? I don't remember. Uh -huh. um, you know, we kind of split off for high school, so he might have gone to the other mm -hmm. high school in our area. I don't really have any recollection of him, though, in my high school. So we've got about 30 seconds. What, what do you think the next steps would be, Julie? Um, you know, for, for This American Life, I think that the, the next steps would be um, don't... You can get in touch with him and find out if he'd be up for you coming over. Um, but uh, I wouldn't, we would probably have, we'd probably send a producer with you to go do the interview. Um, and that's usually like we send producers out with people to go get tape. So, so I would say don't interview him yet until, uh, until we hook that up. Okay. Um, but yeah, that would be, those would, that would, and I, I definitely want to keep on talking about it. I think it's a totally crazy story. <laughs> um, and I would, I want to know more. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I, those are the, those are the next steps that I would say is, 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 eh put the brakes on for a second while we just sort of organize on our side. Cool, awesome, thank okay. you. Great. Okay, so that's a yellow light. Oh, yeah, yeah, hey. yeah, definitely. <laughs> Great, yeah. Great. thanks so awesome. much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. So can we take maybe another question or two? Yeah. Um, for Julie, so in, in this case, if, if this person says no, it sounds like really for the piece to work that you need him and the piece. If, if he says no and says, no, I don't want my story told, I don't want me on the radio, uh, does, that, does that kill the piece? Probably. Or do you try to think about it differently? I might think about it differently. It might become a smaller piece. Um, yeah. I think, though, if we know for sure that he doesn't want to talk about it, the nice thing about it structurally for the story is that we can close it off right away, as opposed to sort of like not you know, sort of not address the obvious thing of like, well, why don't you go find him and ask? Mm -hmm. What's, especially, if this is a really sensitive story and potentially could have mental illness and whatnot, what's the, what's the fear of exploitation or, I mean, probably your post sketch, things like this happen to them very frequently and you don't go 
trying to track down the person who contacts Ira Glass every day. Um, but what's, you know, is there a concern about ex exploiting someone? Uh, I mean, there's a concern about it, but I feel like, you know, I, I couldn't even answer that until, like, you got in touch with him and found out more. I mean, I think if, if it became obvious that uh, he's not able to, uh, you know, he's not able to make these decisions on his own, uh, then we would have to discuss that. But it sounds like maybe he's not at that point. Um, so, so, I mean, exploitation, I don't know. Are we going to put him on the air and make fun of him? I don't think we're going to do that, you know? I mean, I think that you probably have a lot of sympathy and feeling for him. I feel like already from your story, I have sympathy and feeling for him and just want to know more. So I think the, the concern about, about are we using him for entertainment isn't, I, I kind of trust us a little more than that. Great, thank you. I think that those are all the questions we have time for, unfortunately. But fortunately, I'm going to invite our rapporteurs, Karen Michelle, to come up and make sense of everything you've heard. Um, she has just about three minutes and 30 seconds to do it. Okay, well, as Laura said, the pitch is about making the private public, or as I once saw on a uh, headline on a newspaper about pubic radio. <laughs> Uh, and even though This American Life doesn't take, uh, it has stories about not anything, it's not about anything in particular, a pitch has to be quite particular, especially if, like Pittsburgh, you are trying to change your identity. Now, Pittsburgh has the new gold rush, just as we know there is no new gold rush in pubic or public radio. However, if you are involved in child abuse settlements, it's not bad to sell your cemetery. Um, you have to drill, take risks, and... Uh, and as I saw in a sign in Pennsylvania, you know, get the frack out and uh, don't worry about risking your reputation. Having said that, we're talking here about the rise of the mango as a commodity fruit. How do you cut a mango? In effect, how do you peel back the story to get to its inner pithy part? Now, if mangoes become the banana of the 21st century and Carmen Miranda wore bananas on a headdress, I think next we can expect Lady Gaga to have mangoes shooting out of her breastplates. Um, okay, a pitch should feel like the story you want to tell, and funny is good. So what we need to mitigate, I would expect here, is public radio's unbearable seriousness of being. Um, if we are listening to the universe, whether we are blind or sighted, we are impacting a representation of reality, and that is what we do every day in radio. To do that, we have to name names. People have to talk to us, but be careful what you play, in effect, what you say. As we found out, whether it's in Urdu or English, there is a word on terror. Um, and then finally, when we get to the self-deprecating part, it's important to get in touch with your inner stalker and track down the story, and here's what really worries me here. PhDs are becoming independent radio producers. <laughs> Which says to me, we are in deep bleep. This has been so amazing. Thank you so much to our panel of editors. I really appreciate what you guys do in your everyday and for spending time with us here. Um, thank you so much to our very, very brave pitchers, to Julie and Johanna at Third Coast, to Sue and Erin at AIR, 
to Karen, Michelle, to Peter Clowney, and Paul Ingalls, the NPR liaison to independence. Thank you all for being here.